the legendary Burl Bear, the man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. And if we wanted to write a sequel to Oedipus Rex, I think we could do it with this guest today. <laughs> oh, well, I'll tell you. Because I've never seen anybody go through what he's gone through and turn it into a positive. Well, it's an amazing story, and he has two levels of amazing stories we want to talk about. But first, being as it he is from the famous television show, The Young and the Restless, Tom Beards, let me give you a little bit of background. In the mid and late 1980s, Philip Chancellor III is involved in a love triangle with Christine Cricket Blair and Nina Webster. Although it appears he is going to marry Cricket, Nina reveals that she is pregnant with his baby. Philip and Nina get married and their son, Philip IV, is born. Soon, Philip, drinking heavily, is killed in a drunk driving automobile accident in 1989. Then, it's called life. And then in 2007, it's revealed that Philip III was supposedly not Jill Abbott's biological son. Jill's nemesis, Catherine Chancellor, was said to have switched the babies after birth. It was said that Jill's real son was raised in Australia as Kane Ashby after Violet, the woman he thought was his mother, died. Then, on May 15, 2009, Tom Beards appeared as the mysterious character Langley. Langley is revealed to actually be Philip III, the real son of Jill and heir to the Chancellor fortune. Philip has been alive for the past 20 years and had faked his death after the drunk driving accident in 1989. In another revealing twist, Philip returns to Genoa City and explains to Nina that the reason he left all those years ago is because he was gay and felt back then he would not have been accepted. And this is a true story. <laughs> and art imitates life. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, what we learn from this, ladies and gentlemen, everything we need to know about life we can learn from the soaps. No matter what happens, you can always be reinvented. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I had no idea that I was going to be brought back from the dead, you know, years <laughs> ago. It was such a cool surprise for that to be able to happen last year and for me to be gay because I'm gay in real life. Uh, so it was great to go back and uh, and to be Philip Chancellor again. What happened? Just get a call from your agent one morning and... No, a actually, you know what? I went to uh, Jeannie Cooper's, who plays uh, Mrs. Chancellor, her birthday party in November uh, before that. And I just... Uh, saw some people that I hadn't seen in a long time and the chemistry was there and then I talked to producers a couple of times very secretly they wanted to keep this under wraps they wanted this to be a big surprise for May Sweeps so much a surprise that I didn't even know if this was really going to happen I didn't I didn't because I kept thinking well they said this is going to happen but I haven't heard the phone ring so it was great that it finally did happen and that I could come back and, and uh Bring Philip from the dead. Yeah, that, I've, a couple people, but someone posted on the uh, on our uh, website. He said, "Well, but didn't he, he appear in a vision after he died?" I did, man. Yeah. In two thousand four, I uh, Catherine Chancellor was having a drinking binge, and she saw my ghost. But we can explain it now, saying yeah, that she, she was, was a just, drunken, she was just uh, so drunk. <laughs> That uh, she thought she saw my ghost. Yeah, you could explain anything away on soaps. <laughs> the other thing I love about soaps is that a kid is born, within six months, they're like, you know, 12 or 13, mm -hmm. and then they go away to boarding school, and within the year, they are back as a full-grown adult having an affair with somebody. It's so true. Yeah, the thing about soaps, too, is that um, I've had a lot of celebrities in court in terms of family law cases, whatever you want to call them. And uh, Sam Barons, who was, uh, he played mm -hmm. Jake for many years right. on General Hospital. So we had a quiet little default divorce going. We'd go down to court to do a proof up, and the man was mobbed. Everybody was screaming, Jake, Jake, Jake. We had to put him into a courtroom, but nobody knew his name. 
Yeah. Uh, they just knew his character. <laughs> they knew his character right. that well. It was mm-hmm. the strangest, strangest thing. The yeah. weird, the one that gets me, and I don't know if you've had this happen to you, Tom, but I've seen it happen to, to, to soap stars who are like being interviewed on you know radio or television, and there's, and there's a live studio audience. Someone will jump up and just in a hot sweat panic say, I've got to tell you, your, your wife is having an affair with me. Like, yeah, I know. I read the script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the audiences may be becoming a little more sophisticated today, but I remember 20 years ago going on personal appearances and people taking me aside and saying stuff like that and saying, you know, is, is well, yeah, they relate to it as real life. Yeah. This is all real stuff. Yeah. And even stranger, uh, the Raiders used to train up in the uh, greater Oxnard area, and I was up there and got into the training camp. And in the middle of the training camp, they all stopped because they had to watch the soap operas. Uh-huh. <laughs> Gotta get your fix. Yeah. Oh yeah. The only time I ever got really, really, really hooked on that was gee, it must have been over thirty years ago. Was all my children, uh, you know, and uh, yeah. And, uh, but that time, I think what's her name, uh, Susan Lucci, had already uh-huh. had seven husbands. She'd been a, a weather girl, a uh, fashion model. <laughs> Right. You know, it's amazing the lives they have. Speaking of lives, I mean, your life was pretty incredible. You're doing The Young and the Restless, and you left. Did you leave the series to pursue film roles? Is that. Uh... Yeah, 20 years ago I did. That's right. I had a three year contract, uh, and at the end of the three years, I decided that, and my managers did, who were managing Rob Lowe as well, uh, they wanted me to go to features, and that was my whole intent in 1989. Then what happened? Uh, about a month after I left the show, that's when I found out that my brother killed our mother in Kenosha, oh. Wisconsin. So he had he had beat her to death in her kitchen, and uh, you know that that changed an awful lot of my focus and my priorities. Yeah. That must have been up. emotionally devastating. Yeah, I can't even there. imagine the emotions involved in that. Well, you know, you really can't because they're probably not w- w- what you're thinking. You know, uh, my mom was a great mom. Uh, this is this is right. This is before the Menendez killed their parents, before that. And then uh, there was a lot of backlash against the Menendez's parents because people thought, how could somebody that didn't abuse their children get killed? So, you know, they kind of blamed the parents. And my mom in no way abused my brother and didn't, you know, she didn't deserve to be hurt or suffer at all. So part of my uh, thought process and emotions were uh, feeling bad for her and feeling guilty that I wasn't there more as a loving son and then complete uh, uh, befuddlement as to why my brother would do something like this. Now your brother did have a a history of mental problems didn't he? Yes and no. Uh, Yeah he did and from the time he was 15 to 19 when he killed her at 19 he had been problematic and my mom had taken him to about 40 different doctors during that time trying to get him help. But two of those said that he was schizophrenic, and the other 38 said he was not schizophrenic, he was just antisocial. And I didn't think he was schizophrenic when he killed mom. Uh, none of the family thought so. We just thought he is being such a, you know, I, I can't use profanity here, right? You can. But go I ahead. can? Yeah. <laughs> well, he's just being such a fucking mean uh, person. You know, uh, we didn't think that he was schizophrenic at all. Uh, having, having looked through your book on, on his diary of things he had done, mm-hmm. of cruelty to animals and this sort of thing, a lot of the things that are symptomatic of uh, psychopaths, uh, which can be inherited, which is a, a genetic defect. And that's interesting because I've got a case without getting into any detail involving a very, very young girl under the age of 10. And besides hearing voices, her first uh, negative thoughts were that she wanted to kill the cat mm-hmm. and other animals around the house. 
So I gather there must be a beginning stage like this. Yeah, uh, they're, they're usually they're, they're from at least from my research on on psychopathy. They're the three the triune symptoms are cruelty to animals, setting fires, and bedwetting in, in combination of the three. Uh, especially the cruelty to animals is quite often a tip off, and it's it's just, you know parents will ask, "What have I done wrong?" Well, quite often you haven't done anything wrong. Uh, you know, it, it's a uh, missing a missing a chip. Yeah, see, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case with my brother, and I don't want to believe that. You know, I do believe in God. I want to believe that we're all created with the ability to to have everything. I don't want to think that anybody is sentenced with any particular disease, disease or limitation. And in my brother's case, because I've thought about this for so many years, uh, uh, I remember hitting him as a kid, and I was nine and he was one. And that's one thing that I talk about in my book, is when that memory hit me, uh, you know, I, I have such guilt about about hitting him when he was just one years old because I was building these cities of uh, Tinker Toys and Matchbox cars and I was making hotels and making cities and I remember him walking through it and, and, and ruining it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's what set him off, but, you know, I, I don't believe... I don't think it's got anything to do with it. Well, I don't know. I don't believe that personally anybody is born without feelings... Uh, and I think everybody can be rehabilitated. I really do. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the analogy that I, I've used in some of my books, because I, I write a lot about this topic, is my brother is colorblind. Mm -hmm. You can talk about something being red hot all you want. You could put him in focus groups. You could put him in counseling sessions. He will never understand the phrase red hot because he doesn't know red. He can't perceive it. Now, they did come up with a lens that does allow colorblind people to see color, but it kind of bugged him. <laughs> but uh, it's very similar. If you're missing a particular chip... Now, Dr. Robert Hare, who's the leading uh, expert, retired now on the topic, says that if you can get them prior to the age of 14, you can teach them how to adapt and live a life where they're happy and they don't hurt people. And everyone's happy and they have a functional life. To, to adapt to what is basically, a, uh, you know, some people are... Born, unfortunately, without a sense of smell or colorblind or whatever. And there are, you know, medical treatments or we're making more inroads in discovering how to help people. And that may be, uh, be one of them, you know. Before this incident, was Troy working? No, he was never able to hold a job. You know, I, uh, he came to visit me a year before. Uh, I was on The Young and the Restless back then. This was 88. And I knew that he was having problems with my mom. And so I said, okay. And I knew he was having problems with the court. And they didn't know what to do with him at that point. My dad didn't want him with his new stepkids, and Troy was always causing problems. He was always causing problems, and I thought, you know what? Let him come out with me, and I'll just straighten him out because I'm not going to take his stuff, and I'm not going to be manipulated, etc. So I did try to get him a job working security at CBS, and he got his uniform. He was hired, but he never showed up for work. Mm -hmm. And to my understanding, he was never able to hold a job. And, and looking back, yeah, it looks like he was schizophrenic, and it certainly looks like he was paranoid during those years. Now, I have no doubt that he is a paranoid schizophrenic. But, uh, you know, I, I really have a problem with people saying uh, he didn't have the capacity to do differently than he did because he certainly did not have to kill uh, my mother or animals or insects. And if he had the proclivity, if, if, he, if, he, if he had that desire, I think... All of us have the ability to reach for a dark side or to reach for a light side, and I think he probably put more input in his in his brain, brain. that was negativity, 
and he just went with that because I know he indulged himself in drugs as a teenager, and he w was worshiping Satan. You know, I don't know the impetus for that, and I'm sure he wouldn't either. No. And it, it also takes someone to be of guidance. You know, sure. Yeah, yeah. guidance. Is Wasn't there a therapist a year or so before the incident happened that had warned you that he had fantasies about killing you? Oh, I'm sorry, the beginning of the question was... Wasn't there a therapist, a psychiatrist, a therapist, yes. who said he was fantasizing about killing you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got... Uh, right, right. I, I got... my After I sent Troy back in 88, because he was peeing on my porch, and even though my other brother, who wanted to stay out with me too, also younger, was in the only bathroom... I thought that was the final straw, and I'm like, Troy, I'm kicking you out. You know, you're you're going home, or, or you're getting your own place. But that's it. You know, you you're not going to pee on my door. And uh, my mom took him back. So it wasn't long after that that Troy sent me these sketches of a genitalless man, which was interesting because he knew I was gay, and so there's probably some issues there because I was completely drawn except blank in the genitals, and I was naked, and I was being held up, and I was being, like, electrocuted and, and everything, but I didn't take it serious at all. He had, even in person, he had said, don't you know I can rip out your heart in six seconds? And I would say, because he, he had studied black belt, I said, well, why would you do that? I would just go on to another, uh, another involvement, and you would just be screwed up. And that kind of stopped him. So, I don't think that I mean, I was never afraid of him. But, yeah. you, but you knew he needed a lot more therapy than he apparently was getting. Uh, no, I, di I didn't know that. You know, I didn't think too much about it. I was thinking about myself and my career and me being on a soap and my boyfriend and stuff like that. So I really wasn't thinking about him. I just knew that he was nearing 18. And I thought, uh, you know, enough of him uh, getting second chances and people not knowing what to do with him. Let him just go on the street. Let's How was he in high school? Did he get along? Was he having trouble in high school, I assume? Uh, initially, he was really quiet, and then, uh, no, then he was problematic. I think he was 15 when he started to cook the, uh, kick the school doors in because he was denied to be on the wrestling team. So, yeah, and he didn't show up a lot. He eventually uh, was kicked out of school several times. Because on the surface, what we're hearing is anger on top of anger. Absolutely. A lot of and anger. A lot of rage. A lot of anger, and that's why I'm saying, you know, does this go back? to when he was one years old and being hit by somebody, me, you know? Or does this go back to uh, him being in a family where our dad left and we knew how much my mom loved my dad and we were all feeling that, you know? Uh, I don't think it was his... I don't think his brain was a cartoon bad guy. No. Uh, what, 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 often, what often happens is, and I want to make something clear to our audience because we're talking about someone who was... Maybe diagnosed as schizophrenic, who's obviously violent. Most schizophrenics are not violent. Uh, in fact, most people with mental illness uh, aren't aren't violent. I mean, they're more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be mm, perpetrators of, of violence. That's so interesting because I kind of assume just the contrary. No, it's, it's uh, all research shows they're more likely to be victims of violence than to perpetrate it. Most people with schizophrenia or mental illness are not violent at all. Unfortunately, because of movies and the cases that get a lot of attention, mm. we tend to think of them that way, and that's not really fair. Uh, it makes people afraid of people that they shouldn't be afraid of. Yeah. yeah. But I think there's also what we're dealing with here is, is as you say, you were concentrating on your career, uh, and I think there's a little bit of uh, that family denial thing going on. You know, well, he can't be that bad, he can't be that bad, he can't be that bad, when he really was that bad, because we don't want to think of our brothers, our sisters, our aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever, as being dangerous. Right. 
Right. No question. No, no, no. Wait, wait. Yeah. I mean, no. Bad comes with the judgment. Dangerous doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I didn't understand that he was dangerous. You're yeah. right. I mean, I yeah. was out here in Los Angeles, California. Right. The, uh, the stuff he was doing was in Wisconsin, and I yeah. wasn't paying you weren't there, that much yeah. attention to yeah. it. Right. Was there any violence against third parties before this happened? Uh, threats. Uh, 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 he would be shuffled around, like if he were, uh, like one time he stole my mom's car. And she finally reported him, and he got thrown into prison. But he was under age, I think. And so they put him in a mental institution. And he kept going back and forth because every time he was in a mental facility, he would, he would try to break out. He would escape or harass a nurse. And yet when he was back in a jail cell, he would slit his wrist. And so they would go put him back and forth. And we didn't know if he was manipulating the system or what he was really going through. And strangely enough, it was about this time that my mother found a book on paranoid schizophrenia under Troy's bed. Huh. She didn't know whether he was <laughs> looking up the symptoms and acting them out or whether... He... Really? <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> exactly. That's very complex. Very com was, it, was he getting any medication for this at all? Uh, he wasn't taking all the medication that he was given. He had locked jaw as a teenager from something that he was getting. Um, yeah. Nothing, I, I don't remember any, any miracle drug, but then again, you know, I really wasn't around. You weren't I, around, I was yeah. in Hollywood. Well, I want to ask you a question. Now, when this event happened, let's focus off your brother for a bit and, and go to you and your experience. Uh -huh. The emotional impact on you, first of all, must have been stunned. Absolutely. I mean, numb. Stunned, numb stunned. stunned isn't enough. Overwhelmed has oh, yeah. to be the word. Numb stunned. Uh, not like you see in the movies. I'm f I, I was more confused i was more confused and it would really take years for me to understand you know how uh, how sad and depressed i was mm. yeah i mean did you go into a any sort of like spiral i mean this must have had an impact on your career on your not really i mean if you know me i am the ultimate adapter and i think that's why i have survived so far and will continue to survive uh i will switch into a mode to uh that's that that's more productive for me so uh, uh what, what i did about that time is is i really tried to concentrate on reaching life after death and you know not that i got anywhere with that but i you know that's where a lot of my concentration went from mm -hmm. 1989 till about 1994. was this a stimulus for you getting involved in art painting the, what the stimulus this murder no but uh, I, I mean as an expression of your emotion right, because right. i've seen some of your work which is Amazing the way it's across the board in different areas, but what comes out is emotion from all of your work. Right, and, and I am into expressionism, and you're right. I did not have those kind of paintings prior to the, mur to the murder. The old uh, story about to be an artist, you have to suffer? To be Irish? No, to be a, no <laughs> yeah, that too. That too. No, that's, that's some liquor. Be, yeah, no, that's no, liquor. To, to be an artist, <laughs> you have to we're, suffer. We're, we're going to take a 60-second break to consult our Irish dictionary, and we'll be right back on True Crimes with special guest Tom Beards.
There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom said kill. Yes, of course. Burl Bear. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Yes, I am the legendary Burl Bear, man of the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. Special guest today, Tom Beers of The Young and the Restless. Famous artist, award winner, humanitarian, many charitable causes, and author of the award-winning book, Forgiving Troy, a true story of murder, mental illness, and recovery. It's an astonishing story. And uh, as tragic as it is, uh, it is also a story of uplift and hope. And I had a message on our website to ask you a question. So, Which is? What's the deal with the monkey? Hmm? <laughs> What's the deal with the monkey? You What's mean, the deal with the monkey? Yeah, the monkey is a pet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. About 20 years ago. Uh, about 20 years ago, my boyfriend uh, and I got a rhesus monkey. For like $1,500 from uh, Monkeys Unlimited in Cincinnati. <laughs> Monkeys <laughs> Unlimited? True. Oh, hey! I don't know if you can still get them, but we, we, they were allowed in Vegas, so we had to smuggle him across the border. Oh, hey! And uh, I, I wanted the monkey to love me so much, and uh, eventually uh, I mistreated the monkey. The monkey would scream at me, and uh, to get him to scream... I did everything I could, and at one point I held his head under the water, kind of like people say you take a squirt gun to a dog. And May then not stop touch him. my monkey. Go ahead. You'll stop him from barking, and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, and uh, at one, at several points, <clears throat> I held my little monkey under the faucet, and I just feel so horrible about that. May not touch my monkey. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> someone's saying, don't touch my monkey. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. someone was upset about that, and they, they wanted to know. They, they, that bothered them, they said, almost more than anything in the book. Yeah, well, that, that's why I put it in there. I mean, uh, I knew this was not going to paint a pretty picture of me, but in 1994, when I was led back to my brother in prison, five years after he killed her, I sat on a park bench, and I realized this story is so unbelievable, and I really have to share it. When was the first time you saw him after the murder? It was in 1994. That was him? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was it. I was. How uh, did he react? <clears throat> oh, he was, he was fucking out of his brain at that point. See, I, I had uh, found my way back to him, and uh, yeah, in the visiting room... He was just gone. He was like Charles Manson, out of his mind. He was wasted away. He was like non-existent. He was uh, discolored. His, his hair was matted and bizarre, and he was just looking around crazy. He was not able to be understood. Because I showed up, I was able to get him on medicine, and he slowly uh, became lucid, and we've had a remarkable uh, growing relationship since since 1994. So this is something that uh, that's uh, an issue that's very close to my heart, and the book I have coming out in uh, next January deals with this. 
And that is people who have a mental illness who wind up in prison quite often do not get any degree or a, re a responsible degree of mental health care. No, non-existent. To the degree anywhere near that they would get in a, a facility, a mental health care facility. And it's just... It is just absurd and tragic. Was the, How did he wind up in prison instead of a mental institution? He had uh, confessed, and he didn't cooperate with his attorney. And the judge was familiar with his background and familiar with my mother. And he was the first person in Wisconsin, Wisconsin to get life, meaning life, in prison. Nobody had sympathy for him. Uh, none of us in the family did. Like I said, we didn't think he was sick in the slightest. I still don't think that he was sick back then. Did well, he, he must have had a psychiatric evaluation at the time of his trial. Exactly. Exactly. And they, they thought he was manipulating. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he said uh, she was a bitch, she deserved it. Uh, yeah. Right. There is several, several. And th that's why I'm telling you, uh, this was a very hard-to-figure-out mentality. But even if you're not nuts when you kill your mom especially if she's a good mom, five years later, lying in prison every day, looking at the ceiling, you're going to go nuts. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he is now, and he knows it now, and he's being medicated, and he, you know, it's, it's been a very long journey. In fact, the first year was fascinating because he regressed. He regressed to somebody so innocent and naive and would ask me questions like, what happens when you go to heaven where do you go bathroom you know that's why the clouds cover up your private parts because we got so much catholic guilt here you know mm -hmm. sounds childlike yeah, exactly exactly he he went there initially in 94 and then uh, uh he has slowly gotten uh better you know it's been like 16 years now that we've you know, we've we spent many visits together, and he calls all the time. Is he in a mental health facility now? He, he's in uh, a medium-security prison right now where everybody has psychiatric issues. Uh, See, there's, there's, there's a thinking process in a lot of the courts that if you commit a murder, murder you're not normal. That's it. Everybody's insane who commits a murder. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with it either. Mm -hmm. But it's an easy categorization. Sure. And it well, also, but it also makes it really difficult for people who are severely mentally whatever. Yeah. Well, it's just like the, the, the case that I... Well, does rehabilitation go with prison? The answer well, no, is no. You, no, but you can... No, that's true. It's supposed to make you penitent, but I don't think it does that either. No, that's why they call no, it penitentiary. It hardens and makes it worse. Yeah. And it, it's a difficult situation. Also, are some of the mental institutions better than being in prisons? It depends yes. on the depends on the state, I guess, too. No, no, I, I believe they are. I mean, yeah. th there are less gangs yeah. in that, and and uh, Troy has had his own cell for all these years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so and I think there is more care. Yeah. So I, I think he's been better off that he has been in the psychiatric unit. Oh yes, you know, Plus he needs it. But if he would have been thrown into the general population. Yeah, he probably would have been violent and... and or dead by now. Right, right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's such a sensitive area, but I still have to ask, how did this impact the rest of your family? How did they relate to this? Or did they? Yeah, sure they did. Sure they did. They're, they're devastated. They're, they're uh, like you would expect, you know. Uh, they hate that I still talk about it. Uh, they don't want this brought up. They... Uh, uh, well, they're just trying to close their mind, that's all. Well, they're, they're very sensitive to it, and they're, they're still very, very hurt by it. And, and me, on the other hand, you know, I'm somebody that 
searches for answers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've always felt for the underdog, and especially Troy, he's my brother. And I knew that even though my mother was dead, she would want me to help Troy in any way, and I feel that I have made a significant difference in his life today. And he's also helped me, too. How's he helped you? Uh, I, I, I suffered a great deal of anxiety. Uh, a great deal of anxiety about 10 years ago where I myself had to create characters to go outside the house. and Being an actor helped, I bet. Yeah, yeah. But this is why I put this in the book, too, because there were alarming similarities between me and my brother Troy. And uh, Troy is easy to be with. There's no game playing. You know, I can just sit with him and I don't have to worry about thinking, you know, what's going to be said or or who's saying what across the room or anything. You know, it's very relaxing to be with my brother. And I can say, look, you know, I just had uh, this audition or had this date, and I was just so nervous that, you know, I just wanted to leave the restaurant. And he gets it. And so that's kind of cool that I can share with him. Look, I'm on the outside, and, you know, I'm having issues too, and I love you, and, you know, both of us can keep getting better. Well, then, back in 2002, your other brother committed suicide. Right. Now, this must have double whammy here. Really? Yeah, th th this is a totally different situation because my other brother was uh, very affable and friendly and charismatic and lively, and he had never been depressed for all we knew. So for him to do this without ever threatening to do it, uh, yeah. It was, it was really, really shocking. It still is, you know. So, through all this, I keep trying to uh, put my head around or try to put myself in your place, which is virtually impossible, of course, for me. But for you to have survived, which I think in one reason, healthfully so, if such a word is healthily, let me ask my editor. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Irish, but healthily, is, is the fact that you have been so outer-directed in terms of helping others, and that you haven't squashed this or suppressed it, because the more you try to squash something down, the bigger and meaner it gets, you know, uh, by opening up to this, talking about it, exploring it, and then reaching out to others, I think it's been a real healing thing for you. Yeah, I think so, too. And uh, so many people read my book, and they write to me saying that they uh, identify which really surprised me because I thought the story was so particular. But so many people identify, and they've got stories of a questionable mental illness in the family. Uh, I've always had really, really good friends, and I've never kept anything aside. You know, I've always talked about my true feelings. That's one reason that, you know, I was the first openly gay actor ever hired on daytime, is because people are afraid to be who they are and say what they think. And, you know... Uh, I'm glad that I did that. But part of me has to do that to remain sane and comfortable. I'm not the type that can play games. Now, when you went back to the show, did you say, okay, I'll come back on the condition that, or did they bring that up? No, I, that was the condition. And how'd they respond to that? Good. Good. Yeah. They had changed uh, producers. They had changed people in power from who was in power 20 years ago because it never would have flown oh, no. with the same people. But now well, that's not unusual. You yeah, the that times have also changed yeah. as well. 
Because you've got other soaps where you have uh, gay characters down Dude, well. but I'm, no, no, no. I mean, no, it, 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 it's a sad time because yeah. the other soaps that had gay characters, one of them just went off the air, one of them just canceled the gay storyline. Oh. It's, you, you know, you think that there's equal rights, but in daytime soaps, that's really one of the last frontiers. Seriously, it's not like reality TV or nighttime. Hmm. Well, you, you forget how puritanical and conservative this country is when you get out of the big cities. Yeah, true. But and, I mean, that, uh, it, it just, it makes just it, doesn't play. But it makes it all the more difficult for people uh, of that lifestyle who are in small towns in middle America, etc. If you know, if, if if it's on TV, at least they can not have that fear. You know, oh my God, they're going to do something horrible to me. No, maybe he's a perfectly nice guy over here. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's what's exciting about being able to play Gay Philip because he's in thirty countries, and some of these countries, and they'll kill you. Well, they have no homosexuals in Iran. <laughs> that's because they killed them all. <laughs> what an idiot! Yeah. Well, they also said they don't have any mental illness over there. Well, yeah. Perfect country, right? Yeah. Well, you know that. Uh, I can remember people saying about, well, what happened? It used to be we we never had uh, special needs kids in school. I said that's because you used to warehouse them. That's why, and you had no one advocating for them. That's why, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, you know, it's, as long as we can, if we can, you know, uh, hide the hide the hide them away or not deal with it, then uh, then it doesn't exist, and it just doesn't work that way. That's Kipadata who walked in, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we'll all wave at him. <laughs> So, Tom, what did you do career-wise between that trauma with the, your brother and your mother and when you uh, came back to the Young and the Rest? I think I know the answer. Uh, it's, a, it's a long answer, and, and there are a lot of different things I did. I mean, luckily, uh, I have been guided into the art career, but and that's great. But let me tell you, before that... Uh, hey, working at Walmart. Uh, <laughs> I know, I had to... Uh, you know, be, I was a waiter and bartender in Wisconsin. I came out here. I got a soap opera in three years. And then, uh, like ten years later, I I had to uh, waiter and bartend again. And that was very humbling, especially one time I showed up and I didn't know what the event was. And they told me, oh, this is like the Soap Opera Digest party. Oh. And I was oh. like, oh, my God, how do I get out of here? And I went in the bathroom. I just looked at myself and I sat on the stairs and I thought, oh, I got to do this. I just have to go through this night. Because for some reason I'm here. And luckily I was bartending so I could have a drink or two. <laughs> yeah, two or three or four or five. That's when he became Irish, Don. Yeah. When, did, when did you become self-supporting with your art? Because your art is amazing. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, man. About six years ago. Uh, yeah, I, I've been very fortunate because there are so many talented artists out there. And so few that are making a living at it. You know, I went to your website, uh, TomBeers dot I guess temporarynamed dot com, mm -hmm. and uh, extraordinary scope of different types of paintings, prints, magnificent work, and uh, I gather they're fairly pricey and they're selling. Yeah, yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah How, really <laughs> with this going on, were you tempted not to go back into acting? I didn't think I was capable of going back into acting until a couple of years ago. My confidence level and anxiety was so high, I really didn't think that I, that I could handle people looking at me on stage. And I am. And so my confidence is building. So it, it's been really cool. Are you still doing your art? I am still doing my Great. art. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 
I think it is very important to note that uh, in September 2009, the Human Rights Commission at a Black Tie Gala presented Tom with their Visibility Award for his continued contributions to charity work for human rights through his art, acting, and writing. That must have been a thrill. That's a real honor. It is. You know, they honor uh, a lot of big people, a lot of senators and stuff, and so I felt, uh, yeah, that, that, that was great. That, that was better than getting any acting award. Not that my acting would warrant it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did get a few notes about that. But <laughs> any, any overtures about a movie? Because this is an extraordinary story. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, Nothing definite yet. There are people interested, and so we're exploring that. I, I totally would like to see it on the screen because I have uh, something I want to say through this. And luckily, my brother Troy is actually on the same page because I've talked to him about it. And I want people to understand that killing somebody is counterproductive to their own existence. You know, this is this is there. There are two examples. Uh, of killing in here, my brother that killed himself and my brother that killed our mother. And uh, so for anybody that is actually considering killing, I think that this book is so honest and blatant that people may rethink that. We're going to take a short break. Be right back with Tom Beards on True Crimes on the Outlaw Radio Network. Would you like to touch my monkey? There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing, the kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom said kill. And now, back to true crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm Burl Bear. He's Don Waldman. Special guest Tom Beers for The Young and the Restless. His award-winning book, Forgiving Troy, a true story of murder, mental illness, and recovery. And we were just talking before the break. If you're thinking of killing somebody, whether it's you or somebody else, chances are that's not a wise idea. <laughs> Matt's going, yeah, duh. But we know when no, you're no, in that people, frame of mind, you don't think that way. Yeah, and people still do it. I mean, uh, I, I'm against war as well. I, I don't think war really... I don't think killing anybody is... is productive uh and yet yeah, people and do it quite often out of a feeling of powerlessness absolutely i think almost everybody does it out of a feeling of powerlessness and if we all felt powerful i don't think uh, we would ever take that action run that by me again a feeling of powerlessness powerlessness yes. same thing as we were talking about don on a few shows ago about uh, the, the difference between a pedophile and a situational child molester the situational child molester is usually someone who has been in a such a powerless situation made to feel so powerless that when they feel powerless they want power mm. over mm -hmm. someone it goes back to there was a dr milton oh, i see where you're going yeah dr milton laden 1947 came up with a theory and there's a book on it called escaping the hostility trap where he talks about what a 
human beings only become hostile when they feel a lowering of status or self-worth. Beautiful. And then what they try to do is compensate by putting the other person down and elevating themselves. Well, then the other person goes through the same thing, and you have this escalation of hostilities. Well, how do you break the cycle? Escaping a silly trap is you don't play the game. You don't go through that martyring and then trying to get one up to boost your feelings of personal power. Sometimes people become so feel so powerless that the only way they feel or believe they can reclaim their sense of personal power is to do something extremely unpleasant, such as beat up a weak person or molest a, a, a small person or kill somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's extremely articulate. That's exactly uh, what I feel. And uh, uh, people can be taught not to. But if people are left to their own devices, it's like, you know, without an educator, you don't get educated. You know, if you don't have a gardener, you're going to have lots of weeds, you know. <laughs> uh, people need guidance. People need education. People need to learn how to do things and life skills. One thing that having a, a son who... Uh, has uh, some challenges being he's autistic, very high-functioning autistic, is that the type of training he received in school, being special needs, was in some ways better than the other students got. Well, they're getting much more individual attention, by and, definition. And also, they were taught to deal with things such as taunting, teasing by other students. You know, how do you feel when someone calls you retard or makes the rude remarks about you or, you know, this, that, or the other thing? You know, and let them process it, talk about it. Give them tools to deal with, uh, you know, those emotions, feelings, those, you know, I'd like to, you know. And so he's 27 now, says, I'd like to just haul off and, you know, <laughs> but he doesn't. You know, he doesn't do it. We, you know, we talk it through. You know? But if no one gives you those tools to use, no one give, gives you the you know, alternatives, then you don't know. Right. And I think, uh, you know, we are as people, I think we're all intelligent enough to reach for the um, productive form of behavior, something that will essentially benefit us. And ultimately, then we're not we're not hurting anybody else. When we're, when how we're do your emotions from time to time, how are they reflected in your paintings? Uh, the expressionism, it just comes right out there, man. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, and I'm proud of that, that I'm not editing it. You know, there, there are many times that I'm at the canvas, and I just let it go, and I, like, I see colors. It, it's almost like it's telling me where to go, what to do, and I just go with the intuition, and at the end, I look at it, and I think, oh, my God. Oh, wow, that's what it is. Oh, and I can certainly see the dysfunction in, in my early family, and, yeah. I would think that painting would be something that you would be doing alone in the studio, and yet you have done many live paintings in front of others. Does yeah, that, that amazes me. He does yeah, that for charities. Does that affect your creativity when you've got other people sort of staring over your shoulder like that? <laughs> no, no, no. Because, no, that, that's amazing. No, no, because I don't believe... Well, that that's the thing. I mean, I am really in tune with just letting the creation happen. I don't think there's good art. I don't think there's bad art. So I don't, I don't think whatever I'm doing... I don't care if somebody comes up and they don't like it. I don't care because it's not good or bad. I am just going with, with, with what I have to offer. So I enjoy that, you know. Uh, I enjoy that. I've got every confidence that it's going to have a real nice composition at the end. So I, I'm, I'm just really happy doing that. I think part of the, the whether it's, it's uh, any kind of art, whether it's writing uh, which I, or, or the, the visual arts, 
I think that confidence and that trust in the process has a lot to do with it. Uh, personally, once in a while, if there's been a gap between times of when I've done a book and I'm going to start a new one, I have to remind myself. <laughs> oh, yes, I've done 12 of these. I know how to do this. I've done them before. But if it's something you do every day, you know, or almost every day, and you can continually do it, then you have that that ongoing flow of, yes, this is what I do. This yeah, you're an artistic multitasker. Are you going to be writing anything further? Oh, absolutely. What do you, yeah. Have you started something? Uh, you know, I've asked people for stories uh, for a compilation book uh, about, uh, well, I, I don't about about people being visited by uh, dead people. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'll add to that book. Cool, cool. And, and uh, you know, I would like to go there. But, I, you know, there, there's a lot of other stuff that I'd like to write as well. Sure. Yeah, we had a conversation about that here yeah. late one evening. Marty, uh, Matt's brother, will get into that, and they go round and round. But uh, I got to tell you, I had one. Maybe you'll, you'll find this entertaining. I don't know. I'm sitting in my apartment one time, and I look up. My deceased father yeah. suddenly is in the doorway, not 3D solid, but kind of like Topper, you know, <laughs> George and Mary and Kirby, you know, translucent. W was he there or there in your mind? Yeah, uh, kind of there in my mind, but also I could put, put where he was in my mind in a physical space, even though it wasn't like like solid, you know, and kind of like dreaming while awake sort of thing. And I go, hello. That's a very common time where people do have these visions is when they're in a semi-sleep state. Yeah, alpha wave, uh, alpha wave state. Right. Well, so my father says, hi. He says, uh, I just came by. He says, I want to warn you about something. He says, this is on a, uh, I think it was a Friday or Saturday night. Says, you're going to get a call Monday morning. He says, uh, you're going to have a big crisis. At that time, I had a cable advertising company. He says, you're going to have a real big crisis with your company. And it's going to take what's going to seem forever for it to get resolved. He says, but have faith. It's all going to work out fine. But it's going to be incredibly stressful. So I'm just giving you a heads up. You, well, know, you got a ready. speech. Yeah, he gave me a speech. <laughs> and my daughter, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my daughter's watching me going, yeah, yeah. She goes, who are you talking to? Well, your daughter to? was there, so there was nobody there as far as your daughter was concerned. And she's going, who are you talking to? And I said, I'm talking to Papa Dave. And she says, okay. Bye. <laughs> and, and then Monday morning, 8 a.m., the phone rang. I went, uh-oh, and I picked it up, and it was my general manager. says, we got a crisis. And it took about a year for it to resolve itself. It was horrifyingly stressful, but what kept me going is the fact that my father had appeared to me and said, it'll all work out. That is awesome. That is awesome. I love stories like that. And like you said, that's what kept you going. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I think there are times that we can be. If I hadn't had that, I probably would have, you know, <laughs> God only knows. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Because it was incredibly uh, stressful. Yeah, but, but uh, one thing is, well, if my dad went through all the trouble, you know, basically a long-distance uh -huh. call, uh -huh. <laughs> and he didn't reverse the charges, you know, I'll go with what he said. Yeah, I've missed that experience so far. I don't know how I'd react to it. Well, you know, it's not as shocking when it happens as it seems. It's just kind of like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's peculiar that way. You know, it's uh, how do you tell a stranger about rock and roll? Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like having those near-death experiences, you know. How many years between the time of the murder until you wrote the book? Uh, almost 20 years. I would assume that that 20 years was your recovery period. Oh, well, let me tell you that I've worked on the book a lot during those 20 years, and I researched an awful lot of court records, and I rewrote it and rewrote it, and, you know, I was weeping many times uh, at that. So, yeah, it, it, it was cathartic. 
Yeah, because it, it had to positively affect your emotional state, getting it out, getting it out, your feelings, your emotions, and what should happen after it's happened. You know, especially now, because really, I mean, it, it's been 20 years since my brother killed my mother, and I do have family members saying, you know, why do you keep talking about this? But I get emails every day telling me that this book has changed lives, and yeah, and I, you know, I knew that this was something bigger than me, and so that's why I, I did share it. And it, it did receive an award. Yes, so, I mean, received many awards. So it's obviously been of significant value. And I, as I mentioned, having done work with the schizophrenia and a book on mental illness for a friend of mine, and and been on many of the discussion boards, uh, so one of the illusions that people who deal with mental illness or have a family member with mental illness is the illusion of exclusivity, that they're the only ones who've ever been through this, that the only ones having this experience, that no one else could be going through anything like this, whether they're the, the person with the, the problem or the person in the, in the surrounding, you know, in the ripple. But you find out that, no, <laughs> there, you know, these are average responses to unaverage situations that uh, you're not alone, that there are other people who have gone through these similar things and there are sources of strength and inspiration from this. Right, and, and we can all, you know, look at our lives and if we don't like something about it, we can change it. Just, know, we, we have that power. Just like on the soaps. You can, exactly. <laughs> just like on the soaps. You can reinvent yourself. <laughs> how, many, how many times has Madonna done it? <laughs> so at this time, you feel like you have understanding as to why she was killed? My brother doesn't have understanding. He still comes up with reasons that, that, that he can't. I tell you, you know, uh, I know that 70% uh, of boys that have uh, committed matricide do it in the kitchen uh, or the bedroom with a blunt object. Wow. Maybe there's repressed homosexuality. Uh, I don't know how much of that, you know, is, is in this case. Uh, I just know that my brother was angry. And she was the person who loved him the most, that, that wanted him to... Uh, to change i guess she was requiring change of him and at some point it's easier to just kill what wants you to change mm -hmm. very simple isn't it yeah sometimes things aren't very complex They're did, just did you talk with his therapist after the fact he had so many therapists uh no i i have their writings and notes oh i oh i am in contact with his prison therapist yeah that gives you some insight i would think well, depends. Depends, you know. Yeah, but what depends on their understanding of no, what's no, no, happened no, no, too. No, they're, they're not interested in, in finding. Mm. No, out the I, reason. it's, it's no, more no. of of what well, can we do today? How are you yeah, living exactly. your life today? How do you function today? So they're just doing diagnosis, well, nothing yeah. more. Well, no, it's kind of like a cognitive yeah. behavioral thing, which is I don't care how you got here. It's what are you going to do now? You know, what are you doing in your life today? What are you going to choose to do with your life today? It's different, it's better, it's productive. Or, you know, in prison, it's just how, how are you just going to not act up? What can we give you so that you're not a problem? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, a common thing that happens with people in prison. They just sedate them. Right, right. Or possibly ignore them. And that's why it was so uh, beautiful that I was able to go back to my brother five years later. And it was my showing up. 
that brought him medication. And well, I think if you hadn't shown up, right? Who would who would have advocated for him? Nobody. Right. Right. See, and, this is another important thing of advocacy. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And again, I'm the one that that I feel benefited so much. You know, having my little brother back, a little brother that I never knew because I was I'm eight years older than he is, so we never really hung out and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. It's it's a special place in my heart. You know, I think brothers are important. Yeah, I've got one of my own, as a matter of fact. Right. <laughs> was there a fear factor that maybe you had the same makeup down deep that caused you to act out like he did? Uh, no. The one thing that I got about writing the book is where I lost my temper, why... Uh, I have all the answers. The, the, my, where my anxiety, I think, comes from. Uh, I've never... No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not a violent person, so I never thought that uh, I, I would ever hurt anybody. But, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder that people think that, or maybe they wouldn't want to hire me because I'm associated with a family member that has schizophrenia. You know, there's still judgment out there. There is. There's a great deal of prejudging, sure. superstition. That's why I mentioned the thing about, uh, about people with mental illness tend to be not violent. They tend to be more victims of violence than the other way around. Listen, we're all out of time. I want to mention the book is called Forgiving Troy by Tom Beards. You have a remarkable understanding of what's happened. Yeah. You really do. TomBeards.com. That's T-H-O-M-B-I-E-R-D-Z.com. You can look at the paintings, you can get the book, you can find out what's going on with the young and the restless, and uh, Mr. Chancellor, and uh, whose baby was whose. Pearl, <laughs> uh, keep taking those medications. Will yeah, you? I will. I just got a fresh batch. I'm all right. Thanks, Tom, for coming by. Thank Don, you. great show. Really? Thank you. Matt, bless you.